It's always dicey turning a book into a movie. On one hand, you have a great piece of work, all laid out for you, ready for adaptation. But on the other hand, books and films are such wildly different forms of storytelling that it can be almost impossible to adapt an entire book as written within the limits of runtime and other limitations of a feature film. And this can lead to debate and fan unrest, as parts of a book that a reader might love do not merit inclusion into the film. Or how the casting of an actor in a certain role can leave audiences feeling that their vision of the character isn't being respected. Some books are so completely reimagined by the filmmakers that they are an adaptation of the book in name only. And of course, sometimes great books make terrible films, which satisfies no one, asks Stephen King. And for every Dune from 2021, there's a Dune from 1984. For every Monkey Planet being broadly and almost unrecognizably adapted into Planet of the Apes, there is an Old Man in the Sea, which does its best to nail the book note for note. And for every Gone with the Wind, a product equally beloved as a book and a film, we get a Solaris, a noble attempt to translate an almost unfilmable book to screen. I don't know if my favorite films are based on books or are wholly original. I don't keep track of that sort of thing. I enjoyed the book of Jaws. It's fine. But the movie is one of my favorites. And the aspects of the book that don't make it into the film, such as Hooper's affair with Ellen or the mayor's real estate interests driving his desire to open the beaches, they're not missed. The movie didn't need them. Likewise, did Fellowship of the Ring require Tom Bombadil and the Barrow Whites? Or Glorfindel? Or was it just fine? Even better, the way Peter Jackson interpreted it? It's all a matter of taste. Perhaps most troubling is how the current trend of young adult novels and series of novels featuring a chosen one-style child character are frequently being turned into films that, while popular, can also leave those that love the books first and best feeling that the novels were underserved in the process of becoming movies. Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, Maze Runner, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, Inkheart, Artemis Fowl. Do these films serve the books and those that love the books, or do they serve the interests of studios more focused on creating and exploiting franchises? And importantly, are young readers, who are also potential future cinephiles, seeing their visions brought to life in ways that will bring them back for more? Books will always be made into movies. It's a natural and time-honored process at this point, and when it's done the best, it's something we can look forward to rather than dread. Whether you have excitement for films that lie ahead in the release schedule, or if you just love old movies. Film historians, I'm Derek and I love old movies. We've got Sam the Sidekick here. Hello, and welcome to episode 35. We're in a new month now. April. Yes. And that means a whole new theme. Yeah. Last month was westerns, but this month it's high adventure. We'll be sailing the seven seas. The brutal deserts. The lush forests. And the realms of magic. We've got four great films for you this month, starting off with Moby Dick from 1956, directed by John Huston and starring Gregory Peck. Well, the last time we did a Gregory Peck film, which was last week, right. 
it wound up being our most successful episode debut ever, with over 200 listens in its first week. Yeah, that that was unprecedented for us. No kidding. So hey, if folks like Gregory Peck so much, let's give them a bit more Gregory Peck. Yeah, and this is prime Peck, like a signature role, fair to say? Fair to say. All right, so let's do some business and get on with things. So business number one, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Without you guys on your end doing your part to help our show out, we wouldn't get very far. So thanks for coming along for the ride. We're pretty grateful. And if you could, please take a moment right now to hit like, subscribe, and share. Especially share. Yeah. The sharing is the big one. Or if you're on an audio-only platform, see about dropping us some stars and maybe a quick review. You'd be surprised how much that sort of thing really helps. And then, what the heck, why not check us out on the socials? Sure, it's fun and easy to do. We are on the Facebook. I Love Old Movies, the podcast. The Instagram. At I Love Old Movies, the podcast. El Twitter. At ILOM podcast. Or email. I Love Old Movies, the podcast at gmail.com. All one word. And of course, you should also do what all the cool kids do, which is pet the rock. And by that, we mean head on over to petrockradio.ca to listen to amazing local web-based radio programming with fantastic music and previous episodes of our show broadcast three times a week. Monday, Saturday, and Sunday. Pretty damn cool. We'll link that for you in the description. Okay, so, Moby Dick. Yes. You know, I've always wanted to see this. You will find it filled with a lot of familiar themes. Man versus nature, the folly of revenge. Oh, all the good stuff then. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Let's get on with it then. Hit the music. So normally, this is where we would speak of our director, John Huston in this case, but we just spoke about John in episode 31, The Unforgiven. So feel free to go back and listen to that to hear what we had to say about him and his career. So we'll jump right in with our screenwriter, and we have kind of a big name here. And in fact, a name I did not really expect. Ray Bradbury. Yeah, that Ray Bradbury. Known primarily as the most influential science fiction author of the modern era, Bradbury produced a vast body of work, mostly short stories and novels. A great deal of them were adapted into films or television episodes, but Bradbury was not a frequent screenwriter. In fact, Moby Dick was his first screenplay. His metaphorical style seeming like it would make him a natural choice for the project. Bradbury spent the first several years of his career sticking to the various books, poems, and plays that he wrote. He didn't actually become a widely recognized name until the publication of his novel, The Martian Chronicles, in 1950, which was later adapted into a TV miniseries. Taking inspiration from Yevgeny Zemyatin and Aldous Huxley, he later wrote Fahrenheit 451, which was later adapted into a film in 1966. He is most known for these two novels, as well as The Illustrated Man in 1951. While Bradbury's best work mostly consists of his literature work, he was consulted during the writing of several screenplays, including Moby Dick in 1956, and It Came From Outer Space in 1953. He 
received many different awards for his work as a writer, including the Grand Master Award from the Science Fiction Writers of America, and he even had a crater on the moon named Dandelion Crater after his novel Dandelion Wine. The New York Times once referred to Bradbury as the writer most responsible for bringing modern science fiction into the literary mainstream. Bradbury died in 2012 at the age of 91. A prolific actor with many screen appearances split between film and television work, Richard Basehart never really achieved the sort of acclaim or renown that some of his contemporaries did. Abandoning a career in journalism and broadcasting to pursue acting, Basehart began on stage, first in Philadelphia and then in New York, both on and off Broadway. His performances attracted the right kind of attention and acclaim, and by 1947, he debuted in film with Repeat Performance. Basehart became quickly known for standing out in the films he appeared in, his acting skills usually notably a cut above his co-stars. Basehart took his acting very seriously, excelling at playing introverted and tormented characters, and specifically looking for roles to play that gave him the chance to do that. He likely left stardom on the table, focusing more on quality performances than celebrity and event film opportunities. He spent a great deal of the 1950s living in Italy, working in films there, but his role as Ishmael in Moby Dick was definitely a high point in his decade. When he returned to America in the 1960s, roles were harder to come by, but he appeared in the usual array of guest TV spots before landing a role on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea as Henry Wirtz. His wonderful speaking voice also led him to do a great deal of voice work and narration, and it's his voice that you hear at the beginning of old episodes of Knight Rider, for listeners who remember that show. An actor focused on craft and not acclaim or wealth, as well as a strong advocate for animal rights, Richard Basehart died in 1984 at the age of 70. Actor, lawyer, soldier, professor, it's fair to say that Leo Gen accomplished quite a bit in his career. After graduating from Cambridge with his law degree, Gen was discovered as a stage actor and given professional roles, eventually even becoming a member of the Old Vic Company. By 1935, he had appeared in 11 films, before World War II started and he joined the Army in the Artillery Corps, reaching the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. The war didn't impede his acting career much, as he continued to appear in films regularly during this time, and was the narrator voice for films related to the British war effort. By the end of the war, he had ended his legal practice after acting as an assistant prosecutor in Nazi war trials. After the war, Gen began working in films again, and on Broadway, being in higher demand than ever before. And he worked steadily until the mid-1970s, amassing a solid resume of appearances that included roles in five Best Picture nominees. Henry V, Pygmalion, The Snake Pit, Quo Vadis, and The Longest Day. Also, the voice of British coronation ceremonies and the opening of the United Nations. Gen was also an honorary professor of drama at several universities in the United States. Leo Gen died in 1978 at the age of 72. A classic of American literature, Moby Dick seemed a natural for adaptation from book to film. But the technical requirements prevented studios from wanting to take it on as a project for some time. John Huston had wanted to film it for a while, 
and envisioned casting his father Walter in the role of Ahab. But by the time filming could actually begin, Walter had been dead for four years, and a recast was required. Major studios balked at the financial undertaking required to produce this film, knowing that the costs would be high, and the depressing and romance-free themes of the novel might make it difficult to attract audiences and market effectively. That happens. We've seen it happen. Finally, it was the Mirish brothers, who had worked with Houston before on Moulin Rouge, who agreed to finance the film under their company Moulin Productions. The brothers entered into a distribution agreement with Warner Brothers, who would market and distribute the film for seven years after release. As part of this agreement, Warner's insisted that a big-name, bankable star be cast as Ahab. Houston went to Gregory Peck, telling him that Warner's were insisting that Peck play the role. And despite his misgivings that he would be miscast as Ahab, Peck agreed. The film was shot in location, mostly in Ireland, and with a fair amount of shooting at sea. This, as it always does, drove up costs enormously. How much are we talking? I'm talking they went over their budget to the tune of basically doubling expenses. Bad news for an indie film. Even a big budget one. And it was. The financial strain wiped out Mulan Productions. And to recoup losses, the Mirish brothers had to sell their remaining stakes in the film to United Artists. It doesn't sound like a stress-free production. Well, let's just say it got off on a bad foot when Ray Bradbury had to admit he had never read the novel. Oh, script as per Cole's notes. Perfect. It does kind of come off that way at times. Add in an increasingly disillusioned Gregory Peck, who knew just how wrong for the role he was now stuck playing, and Orson Welles being struck by stage fright, which was impeding his performance. How'd they get through that? Alcohol. Oh, right. (laughs) And of course, all the usual challenges involved in shooting on the water, and elaborate special effects works and models, and you had a film that really needed to make an impact at the box office and with critics. And did it? Not really. I don't want to use words like flop, but let's just say it took a long time to make back its costs. What were people saying about it? The word on the street was that Moby Dick was a thrilling, rousing, well-acted film with the exception of Gregory Peck, whose portrayal of Ahab was not generally liked. Exactly what he was afraid of. He knew. He knew he was wrong for the role. But critics tended to like the film overall, enjoying it for what it was, an adventure movie, largely purged of the thematic density of the original novel. Houston's version of Moby Dick was the third ever filmed, and the general consensus was that they had nailed it this time. Well, we will see about that. What's the tale of the tape on this one, Sam? Okay, so we have a 7.3 on IMDb, Mm -hmm. the audience score is 73% on Rotten Tomatoes, Uh and the tomato meter is 83%. The film won no major awards and is available to rent on Amazon Prime. In 1841, a sailor named Ishmael arrives in New Bedford, an ocean town that takes its whaling pretty seriously. Ishmael intends to sign up as a crew on a whaler, and he meets an exotic tattooed harpooner named Queequeg. The two of them join the crew of Captain Ahab's ship, the Pequod. Ahab is obsessed with hunting down a massive white whale called Moby Dick. Ahab has fought Moby Dick before, losing his leg in the process, and he is consumed by thoughts of revenge. 
Ishmael and Queequeg are warned that the captain's quest will lead the ship and crew to ruin and that the voyage is doomed. The crew begins the voyage with Ahab largely staying hidden in his quarters. Eventually, he emerges, nailing a golden coin to the ship itself, claiming that the first man who sees Moby Dick will receive the coin. The ship hunts whales, accumulating a good amount of oil for sale, and Ahab believes that Moby Dick will be found off the Pacific coast of South America, so the ship heads in that direction. A chance meeting with another ship leads to a conversation between its captain and Ahab. This captain also claims to have fought Moby Dick recently and has lost his hand in the process. He explains that Moby Dick is near Madagascar, in almost the opposite direction Pequod is headed. Despite the crew being in the middle of a bountiful whale hunt, Ahab orders the crew and boats back aboard and makes sail for the Cape of Good Hope immediately. This vexes some of the crew, especially first mate Starbuck, who is not happy about Ahab's quest for vengeance, ruining the crew's ability to hunt whales, gather oil, and make huge profits. Many of the crew are paid on a percentage of profit, you see, so to take actions that reduce profit aren't looked upon fondly. Starbuck goes as far as to suggest mutiny, couching his plot within the parameters of maritime law, but the other mates, Stubb and Flask, refuse to participate and the scheme doesn't continue. Heading southeast, misfortune and tragedy begin to befall the ship and crew. One sailor falls from the mast into the sea and is lost. And when all is settled, the Pequod finds itself in dead water, with no wind, essentially marooned in the middle of the ocean. Queequeg prophesizes his own death at this point, and requests that the ship's carpenter build a coffin for him. As despair begins gripping the crew, Moby Dick appears. The crew take to their hunting boats, even Ahab is part of the attack squad, but the great whale escapes before any harpoons can land. Ahab orders that the rowboats fix ropes to the Pequod and tow it until they find wind and waves. Resuming their pursuit of the beast, the ship encounters another whaling vessel from New Bedford, the Rachel. The Rachel had done battle with Moby Dick, and the captain's son was lost at sea during the fight. The captain begs Ahab to assist in the search for his son, but Ahab refuses, putting the code of the sea aside in exchange for his vengeance. The Pequod sails into a terrible storm, which Ahab decides can lend speed to their pursuit. Sailing in the storm takes a terrible toll on the ship and crew, and Starbuck's thoughts of mutiny return, but when he realizes that Ahab is not only self-destructive and obsessed, but is self-aware of his self-destructiveness and obsessions, he relents. At that moment, Moby Dick reappears, and the crew set out in their small boats to hunt him down. The whale destroys Ahab's boat, but Ahab crawls onto the whale's back, stabbing at him furiously in their final bloody encounter. Ahab winds up tangled in one of the many harpoon ropes covering Moby Dick, and when the whale surfaces, he is drowned. Starbuck orders the crew to continue attacking the beast, and Moby Dick turns on them, destroying all of their boats and killing them all, before turning his attention to the Pequod and ramming it with its head until it sinks. A coffin floats to the surface, the coffin made for Queequeg, and Ishmael clings to it for dear life. The Rachel arrives on the scene, rescuing him so he may live to tell the tale. So, not the most cheery ending I've ever seen. It's a bit of a downer, yeah. Everyone is dead. Moby Dick lived. No sequels required. 
I guess there are some sort of spiritual sequels in Jaws and Orca, you know, maybe even The Life Aquatic. They all sort of explore that theme of man looking for vengeance against a great ocean beast. This was a two-hour movie that seemed a bit rushed. Did it seem that way to you? There was an awful lot of novel to cram into a movie short enough that audiences would want to see it. Makes sense. Okay, let's pro and con this big white whale. Okay, so as always, we don't actually rate films here on the show. There's no stars, there's no thumbs. We just tell you some things we liked. Some things we didn't. And then we recommend whether or not you might enjoy giving this one a watch. Take it away. My pros. Number one, the opening title sequence, with illustrations that could appear in a Classics Illustrated or the cover of a novel. They were a really nice way to introduce the story. Moby Dick is a tale almost too far-fetched to be believable, even as fiction, and showing drawings, the ultimate artifice, as our gateway into the movie world was a nice transition. Each of the drawings were breathtaking, capturing the spirit of the novel and the film beautifully. Number two, whole sections of dialogue are lifted right out of Melville's novel, and although at times it falls prey to the old chestnut of there's things you can write on paper but not say out loud, the almost poetic nature of some of the better lines lend a classiness to the film. And it's fun hearing lines from Moby Dick that you might remember from such films as Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Number three, that action scene at the end. This movie is one big, long, slow boil. Even the presumably exciting moments have a drab dullness to them. The sun never seems to shine in this film, and the voyages of the Pequod are shown in a lifeless style. But at the end of the film, when Ahab and his men confront Moby Dick and engage in the climactic battle, Houston pulls out all the stops. The action is visceral, Peck finally unleashes his performance into a passionate mania, and Moby Dick itself is not only formidable, but terrifying. Moby Dick hates Ahab as much as Ahab hates him, and when the two fight, they are not on equal terms. It's a colossal mismatch, and Ahab's folly is made plain. You can't take vengeance against an animal, because an animal cannot comprehend so human a motivation, but also, you cannot attempt to take vengeance out upon Moby Dick, because he is undefeatable, and to challenge him is death. And you suspect in his final moments that Ahab knew that all along, and he didn't care. It's an exciting terror train of a final scene, well worth the time it takes to get there. My cons. The music in this film is terrible. It is generic and typical at best, evoking poorly thought out melodrama at worst. Now, I'm referring exclusively to the score. When the churchgoers sing, or when the crew of the Pequod sing their departure shanty, that's all spot on. But every time the orchestral music swells, I winced. I literally winced. I understand that when you are essentially making an incredibly expensive indie film in the 1950s, certain corners have to be cut. I just never feel that hiring the right composer is where you want to save your money. The music in the film could wound up being in any film. That's how generic it is. And a film as ambitious as this, a film based on a novel as justifiably famous as this, deserved a top score. Something unique. Something signature. Something to add to the strengths of the overall product and not subtract from it. Number two. So, Gregory Peck is Ahab. 
Now, I'm not breaking new ground by suggesting that Peck was woefully miscast as Ahab, much to the detriment of an otherwise well-cast and wonderfully acted film. Peck was far too young looking for the role, being only 38 when he played it. And that's not the only problem. Peck's laid-back, too-earnest delivery and limited physicality combined with his Abraham Lincoln cosplay combined to create an Ahab that says the words but doesn't always project their meaning. Ahab is single-mindedly obsessed with revenge, as dangerous to his men as the whale itself is. But Peck's portrayal doesn't show that. When I read that Frederick March was up for this role, all I can think about is what might have been. Number three, the lack of depth to the story. While almost certainly making the narrative easier to grasp for audiences and much easier to film, we are left with a movie that is essentially one big chase. We have an unlikable character who wants to kill the thing. And the whole film is him going to kill the thing. And the nuances and the sprawling themes of Melville's novel are essentially purged until we're left with a more straight-up adventure movie, and not an especially contemplative one. Far more is going on in the novel than in the book, and removing it all leaves us with something that is more Moby Dick in name, but not in theory. On the whole, though, I give this a watch recommendation. It is not a bad movie by any measuring stick, but it does fail, in my opinion, as an adaptation of one of the greatest novels in American history. It plays it too safe, too formulaic, when perhaps more fearlessness and bravado were required. You're up. Okay, so my pros. One. The intro. This was so creative. Basically, behind the opening credit sequence were a bunch of different pictures of old-timey ships, whalers, stuff like that. But they looked closer to paintings or drawings. And that honestly made the effect even cooler. The images were so detailed and intricate, so they were nice to look at instead of just reading the credits. And they sort of set up the general vibe of the film as well. They gave a sort of old-timey adventure feel to it, and that was nice. 2. The ship. It was just so cool. All the ropes and pulleys on the sails, honestly, it looked like something out of a history book. The ship was so unique compared to ones that I would typically see in a film that it really drew my eye in. And the whale hunting. Honestly, it was really interesting to watch. When I first saw it, I just thought about how people somehow randomly saw these huge animals in the water and decided to start hunting them in rowboats. <laughs> it was a really creative idea for how the whalers were getting them, and that was really cool. 3. The final action scene. Holy crap! This was crazy! Everyone was trying to harpoon Moby Dick like crazy, and he was just destroying all of them. He freaking ate their rowboats. Moby Dick was honestly really cool here. <laughs> we had only ever really caught glimpses of him beforehand, but then when we got to see him in this scene, he was coming fully out of the water and attacking the people trying to kill him. The scene was so chaotic, with water splashing everywhere and people drowning all over the place. It was just very exciting. 
The icing on the cake, though, had to be when everything was calm for a moment, and it seemed like the fight was over, just for Moby Dick to pop back out of the water and destroy the Pequod. It was definitely a fun scene, and I was low-key rooting for Moby Dick, purely based on how cool he looked. Now my cons. 1. Gregory Peck as Captain Ahab. He just did not fit the character. Ahab really came across as this bitter old guy with, like, decades of hate following him around. So to see this 30-year-old looking guy going around acting like he's been hunting this whale for more than half his life just didn't fit. There was such a huge gap between the character that was being portrayed and the physical appearance of the actor, it was honestly a little jarring and took me out of the moment. Ahab just should have been cast with someone of a more appropriate age. 2. The Technicolor The entire film just had this overall sort of grainy look to it, but that may have just been the camera itself. The color just wasn't consistent. Sometimes the colors would be very distinct and noticeable, and that was fine. But during some shots, it looked close to black and white. Everything would get all washed out and faded and dull looking. It just didn't look good. I mean, the film probably would have been fine in black and white, but the color issues going back and forth just made it seem more low quality. 3. The plot. Now, don't get me wrong, it was a good film, and I liked it a lot. But the plot was just a little... straightforward. I've been told that a lot more happens in the actual novel, and there's a lot more depth to it, compared to the film, but I haven't read it, so I can't really comment on that too much. However, I still think the film could have had more layers to the story, specifically with Ahab's character. I was really shocked when the Rachel asked Ahab's crew for help to find the captain's son, and Ahab said no. He literally thought that his leg was more important than an actual child. It was just single-minded. And the film itself was just one big long hunt for Moby Dick. It was just so clearly a story about revenge and nothing more. It was entertaining, but it could have been more complex. Wow. It, it seems like we're really of one mind on, on this film. It may not always sound that way, but Sam and I do create our pros and cons in isolation from each other. But in this case, it's really clear that we saw this film in very similar terms. We sure did. Is this a watch for you then? Yes. There's a lot to enjoy here, and it's a cool time capsule of what a big special effects movie looked like 60 years ago. All right. And with that comes the end of another episode. Did you enjoy it? Have you seen this film? Let us know all about it in the comments. And be sure to come back next week when we trade the unforgiving ocean for the lush green of Sherwood Forest as we look at the adventures of Robin Hood starring Errol Flynn and directed by Michael Curtis. One of my faves. It should be one of everyone's faves. 
And next week, we will tell you why. Oh, I'm looking forward to this. Back in the 30s and 40s, Flynn was an A-plus action movie star. Arguably a D-minus human being, but a great swashbuckling hero on screen. So be sure to come on back and check that one out. But until then, be sure to watch more movies. And tell everyone about us. We're not a secret, and you don't have to keep us all to yourselves. So tell your friends. Tell your enemies. You never know. They might like the futility of revenge quests as much as you do. Maybe even more. For Sam the Sidekick, I'm Derek, and I love old movies. Additional research for I Love Old Movies, the podcast, is done by Nikki Weatherden. Audio clips come from prefx.co.uk. Images are used through the provisions of fair use, and our theme song, Burning Bridges, is by The Crocs.